This is exactly right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. I would leave that exam room thinking to myself, if that were one of my daughters and they were writhing on the floor saying, I'm in too much pain, I can't go to school, could I do it? Could I... But I say, no, we're going. We, we plan this, we're going. And that kind of humility was really important. That sealed the deal in understanding parents' reactions, where they're coming from, and how much they just love their children and want the best for them. Welcome to Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan. I'm Dr. Dan. This show is about making the world a more loving, accepting, and compassionate place, one parent, one person, and one child at a time. The key to raising healthy and engaged kids is for parents to seek the same in their own lives while striving to be the best versions of themselves each day. No matter who you are or where you came from, with increased awareness, you can be purposeful about leaving a healthy footprint for your children, your family, and all those you care about while living your own life to the fullest. Today's show is My Legs Are Crying, Understanding and Treating Emotionally-Based Illness with Dr. Maggie Kozel. Dr. Maggie, a graduate of Georgetown University Medical School, is a pediatrician and author. She spent most of her professional life in primary care pediatrics and has taken great pride in translating a pediatrician's perspectives into the written word. Her first book, The Color of Atmosphere, was awarded an independent publisher's silver medal for writing in healthcare. She's been an activist for healthcare equity and common sense gun safety, and her numerous commentaries have appeared in outlets such as the New York Times and Huffington Post. In 2015, Maggie accepted a position as medical director of the inpatient med psych unit at Hasbro Children's Hospital in Providence, Rhode Island. In doing this work, she realized she'd been treating emotionally-based illnesses in her previous practice with one hand tied behind her back. In this time of pediatric mental health crisis, Maggie's passion for writing from a pediatrician's viewpoint shifted to what patient stories teach us about the emotional brain and the basic skill set that pediatric providers, educators, and parents need to effectively manage pediatric anxiety and specifically school-related anxiety. This perspective and work is in her new book, which we'll be talking about today, My Legs Are Crying, What a Pediatrician Learned About Emotionally-Based Illness. Maggie lives with her husband in Jamestown, Rhode Island, and has two grown daughters and spends as much time as possible on her bike. Maggie, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I was completely touched and moved by your humility and your openness and at this stage of your career, you've been you've been at this a long time to to 
talk about an experience, such a fundamental shift in the way you work and managing it in a way that respects traditional medicine and pediatrics while trying to teach all of us and your colleagues about a very nuanced and sophisticated way of treating complex pediatric issues. Thank you uh, for that. It, um, I took this position as, as, as medical director of the med psych unit late in my career, thinking I had seen just about everything. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had sort of assumed that, um, my role there would be to just kind of handle all the pediatric stuff and, and try help, help, uh, the behavioral folks realize, you know, or, or figure out what's, what's real symptoms, what aren't here. And, and I thought I went in with great confidence that, oh, this is what I've been doing all my life. Um, and boy, all of that, um, turned completely on its head, uh, <laughs> because I had so much to learn. Um, and, and I think that that's one of the most wonderful things about all healthcare providers, whether it's behavioral health, uh, whether it's pediatrics, whatever, is we, we need to be lifelong learners. And we need to have that humility mm -hmm. to understand that sometimes things we were sure of turn out not to be true. Um, it's just the reality of mm -hmm. progress. Um, and so uh, this put me to the test. This experience yeah. put me to the test. And what specifically really kind of uh, took me back, was a little hard to process, <laughs> was that um, the, the neuroscience that informs the approaches to emotionally-based illness have been burgeoning for the last decade or two. And we know so much more now um, uh, about the the pathways of the emotional brain and how powerful it is um, in producing symptoms in us. And um, one, of the, um, one of the first things I had to wrap my head around was that the, uh, the result of the emotional brain or the impact that the emotional brain was having on these kids was producing the experience of real symptoms. So um, uh, if somebody was saying they, if a teenager was saying, you know, they, they hadn't been able, able to go to school for two years because their headaches were so bad, um, it would have been tempting in my previous practice uh, to look upon that with kindness and compassion, but thinking, you know, kind of a diplomacy, like, yeah, I can see um, you're really unhappy and you're, um, uh, you're not able to find a way to make this better, you know, but it, it was kind of a diplomacy. And what I wasn't saying to that teenager was, I know you're in pain. I, I understand mm -hmm. you are really experiencing this terrible pain and we know what to do to help. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, that I think was, was the most earth shaking experience I had on the med psych unit. And of course the med psych kids that we saw there were at the far end of the spectrum. They were mm -hmm. very seriously ill with these symptoms, 
but it made me realize, and this is where that humility comes in. It -hmm. made me realize that back in my primary care pediatrics practice, uh, I really did not appreciate, nor did my colleagues, you know, Mm -hmm. it was kind of just the the general approach uh, to to uh, school-related anxiety. We, We didn't really fully appreciate how real these kids' Mm -hmm. symptoms are. And that realization alone is a game changer. It changes everything, the way you align with the patient, the way you align with the parents, the way you can make sense out of treatment for them. Mm -hmm. So here you are decades into your career in a position of authority, director, and yet you are going through a specialized residency program with new mentors of all multi-disciplines. I mean, it's just so wonderful. Um, And we'll talk about the nuance, um, just how words, these simple words, and or, and, but all these simple words (gasps) mean so much. And, you know, your training, um, medical training is, is it in your, is it in your mind or is in your body? And you would think even with psychology in my training as a psychologist, it's also similar, right? Are you, do you have a somatization disorder or do you have like a real disorder, right? It's like, is this just in your head or is it real? And that's unfortunate that that is the underlying, um, message or communication. And what you found is pain is pain regardless of where it comes from. And we need to treat that pain seriously, validate it for parents for everyone involved and there are some do's and there are some don'ts and one of the don'ts which i'd like you to talk about is the debating diagnosis and and the multiple tests upon tests upon tests to rule in or rule out something which is right in your face like it's a headache right of course we need to know it's not a brain tumor but Outside of that, how far do we need to go to keep peeling back? At times, it seems to disprove the organicity uh, of the illness. Right. Yeah, that's um, a really good point. And I think that that would always be or typically be the most challenging part of an outpatient visit um, is uh, discussing with the parents how much of a workup uh, you want to do, um, uh, because the, um, I mean, and what I write about in the book is just ordering every test you can possibly think of before you consider an emotional illness is for amateurs. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody can do that. Um, but it, it really, it takes a more nuanced understanding and um, a, a, a stiff spine <laughs> as you're, as you're uh, talking uh, to this very worried family um, to say, you know, I'm hearing the pattern of this illness. I've done my exam. I've done my history. I really think that where we need to focus right now is on emotionally based symptoms. That was oftentimes not received very well not because the parents were being, you know, trying to be difficult, but because it's it's sort of counterintuitive mm-hmm. um, that uh, you your your response to he's so sick he can't go to school is to say, well, actually, what we need to do is to get him back in school. 
Um, so that's a lot for parents to swallow. Um, but again, if, if you're starting from a place, because they're saying, the parents are saying, I know my son, he's not a liar. He's, he's not faking. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's, he's really, really in pain. And now I know that they were absolutely right. They were absolutely right. right. Where I was thinking, oh, of course, you know, they love them and they're worried. And so, of course, that that's what they're thinking. But I was not right, right. right. <laughs> uh, in that sense. So pediatricians got part of the treatment right. Pediatricians have been very good about aligning with parents and getting kids back in school. Um, and uh, that that restoring function there is a huge part of overcoming school-related anxiety. Um, but we were slow or, or, or still continuing to understand, I should say, that, um, that the child really is experiencing these symptoms, uh, that we have to uh, acknowledge that and, um, and, and stay away from diagnoses, as, as you say, mm-hmm. like debating diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, because that just gets everybody uh, on the on the wrong track. What I what I found on the med psych unit, which also had a profound effect on me, was you don't need to to discuss diagnoses. Mm-hmm. Um, once um, you can uh, help the child, uh, support the child to connect more directly with their feelings, and once you can restore function, in this case, getting back into school. Um, the diagnoses just fall away by being yeah. irrelevant. Yeah. So all that initial effort to convince parents, no, this isn't whatever, uh, gluten insensitivity or um, an appendicitis that nobody's been able to find or whatever, that's, that's all wasted time and is distressing to the parents. It doesn't accomplish anything. Right. Right. Um, so, so not debating diagnoses was the yeah. second most <laughs> important principle, I think, that I took away. There's no need to debate diagnoses. Just yes. we need to just help the kid. And some examples uh, that you write about in the different stories in the book. So for our listeners um, to understand, to give more of this emotional based illness uh, phenomenon some color and some life is this. These are people who have all the symptoms of epilepsy. Uh, without having ep- epilepsy. These are people who have paralysis and can't walk, even though there's nothing physically wrong with their legs or their spine. Um, you know, the list goes on. Um, and so with that, those examples, tell us, you know, as simply put, like, what is an emotionally based illness? Um, great. Thank you for that question. <laughs> I might have, should have uh, gotten to that a little earlier in the discussion. Um, so what we're talking about is, um, and again, there's strong neuroscience behind all of this, um, that the emotional brain is capable of sending out um, uh, decoy signals uh, or um, misleading uh, signals uh, that the body is having, uh, it, it, the body is experiencing, uh, pain or, uh, it could be almost anything. The, sim- the, the decoy symptom, it can be difficulty swallowing. It can be convulsions that aren't really epilepsy. It, it, the list goes on, as you said. 
Uh, so, <clears throat> um, what what that means um, is is that essentially the the physical symptoms that the child or teen is is uh, experiencing, and it, this does apply to adults too, but I'll mm-hmm. try to stick yes. to what I know. <laughs> what what that uh, means is uh, that the the symptoms, the physical symptoms become sort of a a deflection, uh, of the real issues. So in the case of a six year old, who's terrified to be going to school, um, uh, and we don't know why, and right at the moment, it doesn't matter. The function that is being served by the emotional brain is that it's protecting this child from overwhelming anxiety. And we know that children, um, children in general are vulnerable um, and they crave safety and they don't really even have the vocabulary a lot of times to uh, express that they're anxious about things. So pediatricians certainly are, are not the least bit surprised that um, children and even teenagers um, will experience uh, their uh, feelings through their bodies. And um, that seems to be what's happening in the case of uh, school-related anxiety. And the function that the emotional brain is serving is to provide the child, if you will, with symptoms that will sort of and I'm using air quotes here, legitimately accept mm-hmm. him for, uh, uh, exempt him from school. Mm-hmm. So uh, the symptoms always serve a purpose. And in children, the most common thing the pediatricians see is um, that it uh, gives them a, a, a reason, a, it gives them cover for not having to go to school. But again, it's, it's all unconscious. It's not manipulation. It's not faking mm-hmm. or lying. Right. Um, all, the child does not want to be sick, mm-hmm. um, and so and they uh, so it, it's a very it's a very tricky situa- uh, situation. It's kind of a nuanced right. I- idea at times, um, but it really is important for for uh, pediatric providers of all types and and for educators to to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that this is this is what's happening and that it is real to the child. Yeah, and, and as you said, and it's unconscious. So I imagine it's there's this wall somewhere in the child, let's say their brain, where there is this information that this is serving a purpose and this is keeping you from functioning in places or areas that you feel very scared or anxious about. But the child doesn't know that that's the reason. Like it's there, but it's out of reach. Like, and, and so part of the treatment is to open this door to make a connection Yes, uh, to make, as they, we say back in the day with Freud and psychodynamic work is to make the unconscious conscious, right? Yes. And when you can make the unconscious conscious, now you have something to work with. And this is where all of this magic really in the language and gosh I, I love how you talk about in the book how, how just the team and and the self and the self corrections the other corrections the words mean so much because if ever in this process you inadvertently delegitimize or question the child or the parents about the legitimacy of this it just sends everything back because they have to be able to step into functioning and 
growth in a way where this thing behind the door doesn't pull them back in, right? Because I've always found that, you know, kids, and again, this kids, teenagers applies to adults too, but often kids and teenagers, they need to be right. So if you point out where they were wrong about any number of symptoms, it pulls them back into the symptomatology to be right because they need to save face at like an identity and just part of this integral part of their self. And so, you know, the, the language and the, the, um, the sensitivity that I, that you wrote about in talking to the patient and talking to the parents is, is an art in and of itself. Well, well, thank you. I, I had a lot of good role models. And in those first few months, really, I would sit in family meetings with the psychologist and the psychiatrist and the rehab therapist and all the, everybody around in the room with the parents and the kids. And I think, I feel like my, my mouth was like probably <laughs> gaping half the time as I'm listening to them talk. And I'm thinking, why did they say, you know, why did they use that language? Or that sounds kind of a self-conscious way to, to say something. And I saw it work. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's nothing succeeds like success. And you, and I, I learned, um, uh, that the language that we choose, um, is, is so powerful, even if it's subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, mm-hmm. The unconscious brain hears it, even if the conscious brain isn't hearing it. <laughs> yeah. So. And then let's talk. Let's talk about uh, parents in the situation. Parents in the situation, and especially by the time they get to uh, med, a med, um, a med ward, right? Like we're talking inpatient treatment. Yes. These yeah. are parents who have been through it with their child and teen. They've generally been to multiple specialists, multiple tests. And by this time, no one either has answers or people are saying in so many words, it's in your head and you just kind of kind of got to move forward. And so often, historically, parents are put into the and especially if you look at family systems works as well, like parents are put into the role of, well, you're contributing to this. And then Mm -hmm. some of the behavior that comes out makes it actually look like they are contributing to this. But you also found a a place of compassion and understanding for parents who are in this situation. Yeah, it, it, it is um, a terrible situation for any parent. No, one thing that comes across, um, in these situations is that the parents almost universally in my experience want the best for their child. They know their child the best. They know their child isn't a liar or a faker and they, they want the best for their, their children. So when it seems like they're to uh, announce to a third party, when it seems like they're doing the opposite of what you would do (laughs) if you wanted the best for your child, um, we we have to remember that that this is really a, a family illness, and um, that's why um, the parents have to be involved not only in participating in the treatment but helping direct the treatment, helping learning to to say to learning to distinguish what is their child, uh, who is their child in this, and who is the disease in this? And mm-hmm. I think that that was our biggest role was saying, um, you know, tell us more about what little Joey was like before, um, 
this all started to happen to him. And, and that's who we would focus on as Joey and everything else was the disease, the illness. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and parents could wrap their hands around that and they could, they, I think believed us because we genuinely said it. We believed that they really did want the best for their children. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that this is just such a, uh, 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 uh tough illness that can really pull you in. Um, and eventually again, nothing succeeds like success. They would see their children sort of respond to the kind of therapies that were involved and the, the emphasis on restoring function. Um, and, um, the program had a remarkable success rate. Mm -hmm. Uh, and again, I, I just kept thinking over and over again, I wish I had known this when I was in primary mm-hmm. care practice mm-hmm. because pediatricians have a have a pretty good success rate with that minor or, or less severe, I should say, not minor, less severe manifestation of emotionally based illness. Um, uh, we we were able to get most kiddos back in mm-hmm. school, mm-hmm. Um, but there were always those really tough situations where um, the illness was really entrenched. The parents were just terrified that there was some awful illness that their child had that nobody could figure out. Right. Um, and uh, and there were times when parents would just get fed up with me, um, you know, leave the practice, um, mm-hmm. say terrible things. But just because they were so, they would look at me and they'd be so frustrated, you know, right. like, what, what right. are you trying to tell me? Right. It doesn't make sense. Um and I know now that with just a few, few little things in my med psych skill set, I could have been mm-hmm. uh, affected mm-hmm. to some of those other children that I wasn't able to help. We're talking about anxiety and school-related anxiety, of course, the job of kids. So that's like the the primary task. Mm-hmm. What percent would you say, like thinking back on your practice and now with all of your experience in the med psych ward, what percent of the emotionally-based illnesses have anxiety behind them versus other issues? Is it is it the majority? Oh, that's a great question. Yes, um, uh, because I would I would look to my behavioral health colleagues All to right. help me uh, right. with that one. Um, and I would say um, anxiety um, was overwhelming. Uh, we did see and treat some kids for depression. It was hard to know uh, um, if that w- the depression was. Uh, uh, part of the problem initially, or if it developed because they'd been laying in bed for two years. Um, mm-hmm. but so depression, we did see depression, but anxiety was absolutely, um, uh, seemed to be the number one, uh, trigger. And, um, we, uh, especially, I would say we saw, uh, a disproportionate amount of, uh, patients with, um, uh, sexuality or gender concerns, mm-hmm. um, because of course in the 
the climate that we're in, um, those kiddos can feel very uh, rejected um, Mm -hmm. and uh, have all kinds of struggles in school and everywhere. Um, And so uh, those kind of concerns would sometimes uh, emerge. um, But it, it all seemed to come down to sort of a common response of anxiety and anxiety that was too much or seemed to them too much to tolerate. Mm-hmm. And so uh, physical symptoms, it manifested as physical symptoms instead. Yeah. So the the treatment goal, and this is for, um, for less severe to severe, uh, whether we're in a traditional pediatric outpatient um, or in a um, mental health or behavioral health professional's office, the the goal is to restore functioning. That mm-hmm. that's this. It's simple. It's simple in um, statement. The treatment and the process is what takes the sophistication of working with the dynamics of the child, the dynamics of the family, the uh, expected resistance, as we call it, the resistance mm-hmm. to change, the resistance to see it any differently. And the other thing you had to learn was they have to want it. You can't make them want it. Like, yes. like, yes. and that I know in my work as a psychologist, you know, it takes years to learn those boundaries because you care so much and you are cheering and wanting these people to get healthy and to thrive but you have to know where to draw the line of what's yours and what's theirs. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And, um, that's, um, I don't think that's something the pediatricians <laughs> experience naturally. We, we, um, we want to relieve, uh, distress, you know, this kind of, I think if you look at the personality of pediatricians, I think that's something we might all have in common. Um, and, uh, and this kind of work, um, involves, pushing kids into distress, you know, saying, okay, so now what we're going to do is have you go to school and we might do it gradually, you know, take Mm -hmm. steps, but, but we need you to get back in school. And, um, the children typically get incredibly distressed by that. And then, um, and then the parents, um, most parents get distressed when their kids are distressed. Right. Right. It's, It's really hard. So all of a sudden we're finding ourselves, um, pushing people into distress rather than right. uh, relieving it. And again, that's that's not usually where pediatricians live. <laughs> and the last place most of us want our kids to be is in a inpatient hospital, medical, any sort of treatment setting. And yeah. yet, again, this is an opportunity for everyone listening, and yet that sometimes is the place where the, the only place at at a point in time that the healing can occur. So for example, with your former patient, the, um, the one who looked epileptic, mm-hmm. this is part of the treatment plan is not responding to any of the seizures. Now, everyone, this is a person without a physiological basis for a seizure disorder having absolutely real seizures, like not fake seizures, real seizures. And part of this treatment plan is letting them be, knowing, of course, you've already assessed for physical safety and lack of physical harm, that part of this process is the psychological aspects of those seizures, the unconscious seizures not getting an unconscious and conscious reward from the environment. 
And over mm -hmm. time, that's just a piece of it, but powerful piece and how hard from everyone who's a caring person from parent to uh, medical professional to behavioral health professional to do nothing purposely as part of a treatment goal. Yeah. Yeah. That's you actually, you described that whole dynamic, uh, beautifully. Um, and it is hard, but, but what we see and, and, and actually I, just an aside, I think that those, um, non-epileptic convulsions that fall into this category, um, are, were some of the quickest, uh, Disorders right. I, I saw turn around wow. um, quicker than almost any of the other symptoms um, because a, as soon as you can can start ignoring a symptom and not or not reacting to a symptom, that symptom loses its power. Mm -hmm. um, those signals are go have got nowhere to go because nobody's listening, um, and so uh, that that is in fact the treatment, and it does seem a little strange. It certainly seems strange to parents. Um, but it works. It absolutely mm -hmm. works because it just, it takes the oxygen out of, uh, the, um, the, uh, emotional, uh, misleading signals. Mm -hmm. And similarly with a person in a wheelchair who can't walk, um, mm -hmm. psychologically can't walk and then the leg, the, the legs follow, they, they don't, they, they don't work. And right, then right. setting up situations where they're not being taken care of, pushed around in a wheelchair, they have to get to the different events, treatments, groups, food on their own. Once right. you guys have assessed, of course, there is not the, the physical basis. And again, how without reinforcing those very natural reinforcers that anyone loving family members and community members and teachers would reinforce without knowing you take that away and all of a sudden subtly someone's getting up someone's yeah. getting food and again can you speak to the the nuance of pointing out and sort of rewarding and cheering someone's success with at the same time with not giving too much attention to it so the success and function continues Oh, sure. Um, and I think, um, uh, you know, we certainly would encourage, uh, the patients when they were, when they were making obvious progress, but I guess there again, it was that sort of nuanced languages that psychologists know well, um, uh, where it would, it's more a matter of, of, um, encouraging them to feel good about themselves, that they're doing this, you know, yes. um, I hope you are feeling, so we wouldn't say we're proud of you. We would say we're, uh, we know how hard this was and, uh, for you, uh, to, to do. And, um, I hope you're, you're really proud of that. Mm -hmm. um, yes. So, uh, That's an important yes, subtlety, very important mm -hmm. subtlety, right? For yeah. parents, all of us parents listening, um, this is also good practice when you're not dealing with an emotionally based, Ill, you know, when we right. think about <laughs> growth mindset and we want our kids to invest in themselves and do things for themselves, not to just get praise and just because we're proud of them. And that's not to say we don't tell our kids we're proud of them for right. certain things. And hopefully we're proud of them more for their values and their actions than their accolades. Right. Um, but this is really not, but and right. This is a, but and, <laughs> and <laughs> you'll all read that in the book, Buts actually stop it. People, when we say, but we stop it. And it's so important 
for us to reflect this back to the child, to the teen, yes. about them themselves for this intrinsic motivation and this internalization yes. of yes. this this milestone, this success, this victory, and this increased functioning. Yes, yes, that that's beautifully said. Beautifully said. Yeah. So you also write about distress tolerance. This is really important. Um, again, not only for these situations, but for any parent, adult thinking about their children. Mm-hmm. Distress tolerance is a really important concept. So tell us a little bit about how you see that. Yeah. So um, again, I, I think I, I alluded a little earlier to the fact that um, I think pediatricians do not see themselves as people who cause distress. Right, <laughs> they, right. It's the exact opposite Take of what it away. we want to do. <laughs> so, um, uh, so when we have these conversations, I'm you know I'm I'm thinking about now. I'm going back to reflecting back on my outpatient experience when we have these conversations with with parents um, about, uh, yes, the, you know, the child will really have to come up with a plan to gradually get little Susie back in school. Um, then uh, that little Susie will start crying immediately, sitting there on the exam table. And uh, the parents will be like, look at her, Dr. Kozel, you know, you, how, how can we bring her to school like this? And, um, and often, uh, um, one of the the biggest issues is, and why the parents and child are even in the in the office that day, is because they need a school note, mm-hmm. um, and uh, because a school note will give them an excused absence. If they get a note from the doctor saying, yes, they were in the office and I saw for abdominal pain, um, then they'll get an excused absence and everything will be hunky-dory. So, and just more of that reinforcement. And that's a way um, that uh, schools and parents and even pediatricians or pediatric providers, just out of a, a, a desire to be kind, um, that's how we become uh, accommodators to the illness because it shouldn't be all wonderful and good that the child is is staying home. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, when the pediatrician is standing there saying, you know, I'm, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to call the principal and have a conversation or call the school nurse and have a conversation uh, because I don't think a, a school note um, is going is the answer today you know mm-hmm. I've, I've written three school notes so far I, well that's I really what i was going to say school before. notes you're you're not it's not that school notes are never like school notes serve a purpose to a point and then oh, sure. right yes. and then we realize wait this is now enabling we're not getting to the like we're just perpetuating this yes yes yeah, um yeah. yes you know i I'm, I might take it a little further than yeah. you might. Okay. <laughs> I think missing um, school, even for medical issues, uh, and missing school because um, you can't set your alarm clock, all the, those absences aren't good for either child. So mm-hmm. I'm not sure that an, a, a note of excuse is a good way to distinguish between those two things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, or, and that gets into, well, what's a valid excuse and what isn't, right? and what's accommodation and what isn't. So it's a very complicated school notes. Right. I think school notes are really complicated, right. a complicated right. issue. Um, but anyway, so when I'm, I'm, when I'm standing there saying that to a parent there that, you know, I, I think we, we've got to gradually 
work this child back into school. And I don't think a, a school excuse for me is an answer. I think I need to talk to the principal. And that oftentimes would get a very intense reaction from parents, understandably, because again, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive mm-hmm. in a way. Um, and it's hard for pediatricians to, um, to take that, you know, mm-hmm. like we're, um, uh, cause it can end up in some hostility. It can mm-hmm. end up in the parents stomping out. It can end right. up with them changing practices. And again, that's just sort of, that's not your, your typical pediatrician personality, you right. know, to aggravate parents. Yes. Um, so, uh, not only, uh, so if we're feeling distress, if we're feeling distress at the distress that this is causing the right. kid and the kiddo and the, and the parents, then we get a glimpse of, of what kind of distress right. we're asking them to tolerate. Yes. So I just, I want to note um, a mantra that you wrote about and then a quote from a wise colleague of yours. Um, <laughs> the mantra, they are not faking, they are truly lost. They are experiencing what they say they are experiencing. And right, yeah. to truly embrace and internalize that when you're dealing with these patients and these situations. And then uh, your wise colleague, Dan Spencer, says, we believe we can help you and we will hold hope for you until you can hold hope for yourself. Yeah, yeah. Like that just encapsulates uh, so much of what we've been talking about and what you've learned and write about um, and are um, giving to all of us. What... What would you say, so for parents listening right now who are like, huh, we've been at this thing for a long time and our child might actually have an emotionally based illness. <clears throat> what's that, what's that next step for them? Um, so I think, um, probably the, uh, pediatric provider, if mm-hmm. they haven't, um, uh, tried that route before or are, um, or perhaps that they did try it and it didn't go so well, um, whatever. Um, I think that um, pediatricians understand um, school anxiety, uh, and they and uh, pediatricians are pretty good at at, at assessing uh, when it can be handled from the pediatric office versus when we need to pull in mm-hmm. a therapist. Um, so um, I see that as the kind of the pediatrician as the hub in this case, um, Mm -hmm. in this situation, uh, because we, we do have access then if they need a specialist, if they need a therapist, we can call the superintendent or the principal at school. Um, I think the, um, the pediatrician is probably the best best person at the hub. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, um, we'll tell you more all information about where to get, uh, Maggie's book, but it not only is a great read, it will provide you with the words and the concepts and the Mm -hmm. knowledge, not only for yourself, but to help advocate for your child. And sometimes we have to educate, um, our, uh, professionals, you know, like it's, it's just this hopefully collaborative relationship. There's a lot of information out there that are always coming to doctors these days. People are self-diagnosing all the time. This is a way to really arm yourself with knowledge, um, and come into the situation open with another possible explanation for what is probably confusing everybody. Yes. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Okay, it's time, Maggie, for the parent footprint moment question. Here we go. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Tell us about a time that you became aware of yourself as an individual, as a parent, or even an awareness of your own parents, and that new awareness had a positive impact on yourself, your kids, and or those you love. Okay, so um, when I when I started... Um, uh, in pediatrics, by the time I finished all my training and got board certified and all that kind of stuff, I was like in my late twenties and, um, I was, you know, kind, I was compassionate. Um, there was a lot I didn't know. Uh, and, um, by, by the time, about three or four years later, I had my first child <laughs> and the thing that struck me the most about that was Oh, now I get the parenting thing. Mm -hmm. You know, okay. I mean, yeah. pedi for a pediatrician to be board certified and, and licensed and everything, um, and not have completely gotten the parenting thing, <laughs> but you don't realize it until you realize it. Um, yeah. And so, having um, a baby and then a second a second baby um, really drove home to me what it felt like to be the other grown up or the other two grown ups in the room mm -hmm. and hearing what I'm saying to them and giving them the advice that I'm giving and then understanding why their reactions were not always glowing. Yeah. Um, I really got to see it. And to be perfectly honest, I would have some of these conversations about school anxiety. And, and I think they would stick in my mind because they were very vivid. You know, you, mm -hmm. you remember the tough ones. Um, and I, I would leave that room, that exam room thinking to myself, if that were one of my daughters mm -hmm. and they were writhing on the floor um, saying, I'm in too much pain, I can't go to school, could I do it? Yeah. Could I, could yeah. I say, no, we're going, we, we plan this, we're going. And, and that, that kind of um, humility was really important. That kind of, for me, I, maybe yeah. other people get it yeah. without being parents. I can certainly believe that that can happen too. But for me, that sealed the deal in in understanding yeah. Um, yeah. parents' reactions, where they're coming from, yeah. and how much they just love their children and want the best for them. Yeah. Oh, thank you for that. Um, such again, humility, your openness and your humility, and uh, I completely relate to that and had the same experience as a child psychologist pre-children. And then having children, <laughs> it changes the whole way you look at the kids, how you look at the parents, how you look at the interactions. And it's just, yeah. you can't just parent blame anymore because you realize this is way right. more exactly. sophisticated yeah. than that. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. right. You're in the club, yeah. so you yeah, can't blame exactly. anyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, Maggie, yeah. tell everyone where they can find um, your previous book, this book, of course, and all of your writings. Oh, thank you. Well, so, um, yeah, so probably the easiest is um, Amazon.com and uh, just look under Maggie Kozel, MD, um, in Amazon.com or the book's title, My Legs Are Crying. Uh, they'll, it, my previous book uh, uh, will also pop up there. That was more about, uh, that was more like a memoir and, <clears throat> and a, a, a healthcare reform. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> So, uh, yeah, so it's available yeah. and, oh, it's also on, um, uh, barnesandnobles.com. 
I love the title. I mean, the title says it all. Once you understand this uh, topic, my legs are crying. Thank you, Dr. Maggie, for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for giving me the chance. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everyone. Please share this recording episode with anyone you think will benefit. So many people out there unknowingly suffering from emotionally-based illness, and this raises not only awareness, but also how to talk about it, how to understand it, how to consider it, and how to help your child, your family go towards functioning once again. So important. Thank you for your five-star reviews. Thank you for being a part of our community. Do your best to be that person you want your child to become and ask yourself that guiding question. I ask myself each day, what footprint do you want to leave? This has been a Peters and Rossi production. Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan is produced by Laura Rossi. Our engineer is Phil Rossi. Theme music is Strummerman, composed and performed by ProTunes. Artwork is by Garrett Ross. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Parent Footprint Podcast and on Twitter at Dr. Dan Peters. For more information, go to exactlyrightmedia.com. Follow Parent Footprint with Dr. Dan on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.